The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Fall, right? So yes, it happened after the flood, absolutely. Um, but it also happened after the fall, right? So the reason I want to bring that up is if we read Genesis 9-6, it says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for or because in the image of God... He made man. So that tells us a couple things right off the bat. So we know, going back to Genesis 2, that God made man. He said, let us make man in our image, right? So you have to say, is that only Adam uh, made in God's image in the innocent state? Well, no. Now, man's image has certain, or God's image in man has been marred because of the fall, but it has not been extracted, meaning that man no longer has any vestiges or any image of God whatsoever in him. He certainly does. And so you fast forward to Genesis 9, after the fall, after the flood, and we see that God institutes what we would say is the death penalty. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. Well, why? Because in the image of God, he made man. So even in our fallen state, even as sinners, we are made in the image of God, which is the fundamental purpose why, if you think about abortion, why we don't abort babies. Because they are, even at conception, made in the image of God, right? And so why... Uh, so now you say kind of theologically, so no longer does it, it doesn't say this in the text, but we would say theologically, man has given up his right to bear the image of God when he murders another man. So that's why you see here, he's saying man is going to be killed or man will be punished by death because he killed man. And so that is still in play. Now, if you go ahead to uh, Acts 25. Uh, we see this just in a narrative, right? We don't build our theology off of uh, our narratives, but we can see this principle played out in Acts 25. Acts 25, just to build the context a little bit, Paul has been arrested. Didn't turn enough pages and I turned too many. Acts 25, uh, verse 11 and so Paul standing before Festus at this time. You see verse 11. Paul says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, I recognize that the government has the authority to put to death people who are worthy of death or who have committed crimes that have a death penalty. Paul never said the death penalty shouldn't be there. Nobody, you shouldn't adhere to this. He's actually saying, look, I understand my position before the government. The government can uh, institute a death penalty for whatever crimes that they deem worthy of death penalty. And he's submitting himself over to that. Which then goes to show why Paul wrote, if you go to Romans 13... Paul wrote these words, uh, 13, 14. 
Well, that's a good verse anyway. That's not the one I was looking for. <laughs> Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. That's a great exhortation. Um, but he's in Romans 13, 1, I think I added the, the four. It says, every person be subject to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those exist established by God. And then uh, verse 3, for rulers are not a cause for fear, a uh, fear for good behavior, but evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And then as he continues on, he says, Therefore it's necessary uh, for him, uh, you shall not murder, love... Where did it go? Huh? Verse 4. For as a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government does not bear the sword in vain. Otherwise, the government has policies for death for certain crimes, and it's not just waving it up there to keep peace. It's actually going to do that. And then what I find very fascinating is it says, for it is a minister of God. So the government is there instituted by God, has the death penalty instituted by God, and then we are to submit ourselves to that. Right. So... Somebody asked me, does the Bible talk about capital punishment? It absolutely does. The reason it has capital punishment, Genesis 9, 6, we're made in the image of God. If you murder somebody, the Bible says you are therefore um, giving up your right uh, and, and you yourself should be subjected to the death penalty. We see Paul saying that in Acts as a narrative and then actually giving us why here in Acts or Romans 13 as to uh, as to why it has the death penalty because God oversees the government uh, God institutes the government and then those practices are put into place so any questions on death penalty yes we should still preach the gospel to those who are on death row 100 percent yeah states that are coming out with the abortion stuff is based on even the conservative states um, are allowing abortion when the mother's life is in danger. So I guess how do you differentiate that between the ectopic pregnancy, which I, I hear is mm-hmm. totally valid, but then also there are states and, and people even saying, you know, if a woman's life is in danger, you should be able to abort that child. Yeah, so the question was, um, should you be able to abort the child when the mom's life is in danger, right? So, first of all, statistically speaking, it's like 0.001% that that even comes up. Um, Secondly, it's completely subjective. So, you have a doctor that says, here's the the statistics, or here's what I have, here's what I see, and we need to murder this baby in order for the mom to be saved. The ectopic pregnancy is 100%, like they're, uh, because you have things that explode inside of the woman that shouldn't be exploding, right? Rupture, whatever you want to call them. And so that's a guarantee. Uh, and so there is there is no medical procedure that's going to, to save either of them. Um, when you get into uh, a mom with a weak heart or a mom that has maybe cervical cancer when uh, she finds out that she's pregnant, then you certainly have decisions to be made. Um, my advice is not to make them solely on what the doctor is saying, but to seek the Lord in those things, right? Um and so those are the decisions that I would tell anyone, like my wife and I talked about these before we ever started uh, trying to have kids, was what are we going to do in these areas? And we solidified our convictions. And so we knew going into it 
um, regardless of the what we're going through, here's the decision that we're, we're making. And the decision was, we're just going to allow the Lord to do what he wants to do. And um, and so those are those are tough things, extremely rare. And I, and I think that's the fallacy of trying to push these bills is they're basing everything on the one in a million, right? And instead of taking it for what we normally see, which is a, a very healthy mother, a very healthy child growing within her, her just not wanting it or the husband forcing her into it or whatever to go and have an, to go and abort an otherwise perfectly fine child. That's the normal abortion. It has nothing to do with saving a mother's life, incest, rape, any of these things. It's solely so if you can base your if you can base the normative principle on the exception and that's what they're trying to do, then people are gonna say, Yeah, I, I could never let a mom die. So yeah, I'm just gonna give a carte blanche for the whole thing. And so we have to be very, very careful when we when we hear these arguments. So um, personally, uh, I think it's a uh, because it's so rare. It's a case by case basis. But I would find it very hard um, to uh, to go down such a road. But I would certainly solidify any convictions that we have, you know, before going into that. Anybody else? Yeah. So you got the murder, right? Um, and we're talking murder. People, not, not all murders are like no first degree murder. Right. So like in like um somewhere early on in the in the first five books, they talked about cities that were sanctuary cities where yep. say you accidentally committed some kind of atrocity, you could run to these cities and take refuge. Right. They never stopped saying anything about a court or anything like that. Can they live out their life in those cities and and you know stay there as long as they stay there? Yeah, well, the sanctuary city was there, so the individual who committed the act of murder, whether premeditated and they wanted to run there or it was accidental and they ran there, they were set up so that the crime could be investigated. And so they would actually have people who would go as a, as a, a fish, in the official capacity to find out what happened, and then they could live out their life there or they could return back to their city. And so it was It was set up kind of as an interim. So you could say they were in a holding cell in our modern-day vernacular. And so then everything could get investigated to see what exactly happened. I've never seen anything in the scripture where it says that that was what it was. And then I, when I read it, it sounded like they could go there. And as long as they stayed there, they could stay there. Yeah, no, the purpose was for investigation. Yeah. And so the ones, you know, you read through Exodus and, and you see the... The sundry laws, the kind of laws that are taking place between the people as it's set down, some of those exact punishment right away, right? And um, and so, but some of those, as an accidental murder, then you would have to, so the reason it was set up is so, you know, if you accidentally killed my ox, right? And my ox I have for for the field and now I can't eat, in a, in a moment of anger or rage, I would go and kill you or even kill your ox. And so instead of that moment of rage coming upon, that individual could go somewhere and then they would come and investigate it, and then they'd be able to make some sort of ruling on it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Awesome. So, yes, but to your point, there's a difference uh, between murder and kill. And I think oftentimes when we read the Ten Commandments, we say, you know, thou shall not kill. But that's not actually what it says. It says thou shall not murder, right? So there's a huge difference between murder and kill. Um, there's also a difference in accidental, premeditated, and those things which the Bible recognizes as well. But today... Uh, we are going to be talking about war. It's a great, great topic all around, right? Uh, but I think Christians, you know, we the the church, and we'll look at this in the history. But we've sided on different ways. We've come up with different ideas. Um, you know, protesting war and supporting war. 
Um, and so if you look up there, just some statistics, World War One, 39 people, 30 million of them being civilians died. Uh, World War II killed 51 million, including 34 million civilians. Um, since the end of World War II, approximately 150 wars have killed an estimated 17 million people. And the threat of terrorism is always before us today, killing on the basis of faulty religious belief. Uh, and so there is war. There's war going on right now. You know, there's war going on right now around the globe. And uh, and so we have to we have to be able to address that. We have to be able to talk to people about that because you know another another common objection is well why would you support war but you wouldn't support abortion? Aren't they just killing people anyway? And so you have to be able to articulate what's the difference between that. What's the difference between uh, somebody dying in war versus the murdering of an unborn child? And so I just want to give you a brief snapshot here of how the church looked at this kind of throughout church history. So um, some of the early church fathers there, um, in, in the beginning they were substantially, what it says there, of one mind in the rejection of violence in general. And then they would also say military service for believers uh, would be off limits. And the reason being is they believe violence is at odds with the Christian faith, which we would say, you know, we are to be lovable, peaceable. It doesn't say murder your neighbor. It says pray for your neighbor, right? And so we would say, yeah, the, the essence of the Christian faith is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the, the fundamental belief. And so they would say you had to be off limits to for that reason. The second reason was to be in the military, especially in first uh, century Rome, was to worship Caesar, Right, and so they would have to give offerings to Caesar as a god, and so as a believer, you wouldn't be able to do that, and so that would put you at odds with the the people people that were around you. So fast forward a little bit into the fourth century, Ambrose, um, and he said the spiritual he was a spiritual mentor of Augustine, and he argued that a secure peace may be won by a just war. And so we start to see this term back in the fourth century, just war, like uh, not just a war, but a justified war, right? Um, and so, as he said there, that the Christian faith should act to bring justice and compassion to the conduct of war. So I want you to realize what he's saying there. He's saying we're not going to be able to stop war. So oftentimes when you read in the Old Testament, and they would say, oh, the Old Testament promotes slavery. Well, the Old Testament doesn't promote slavery. The Old Testament realizes that slavery is going to take place. It's trying to put Christian principles on it so that you're treating individuals like they're made in the image of God. Same thing with war. We understand that war is going to take place. Well, how do we know that war is always going to take place? Because man's always going to have a simple heart, right? Man's always going to get angry. Man's always going to want to get what he wants to get. So we're not saying, hey, here's how you stop war, because we know how you stop war. We get to the millennial kingdom and we finally get to heaven and then you're not going to see any war anymore, right? So what he's saying is how can we make sure that when there is an inevitable war that it's done and based upon biblical principles in a Christian way? So that's where it started in the 4th century. And these are, and you're going to read Augustine here, and these are actually still used today. You you can, if, if you were so interested, you could sit down and, and look at the, the wars of the past, and you could pick apart, and we'll, we'll look at some of the characteristics of them, and you could say, okay, here's the basis that they were placing or going to war on. Um, and so Augustine actually had these uh, in the 5th century, wondered why if rejection of military force was so crucial to one's faith in God, such men as David, Centurion in the Gospels, Cornelius, and the soldiers who came to John the Baptist, 
were not told to renounce their occupation in several cases were actually held out as examples of faith. So Augustine was saying, hey, if there was ever a time to say don't serve in the army, don't serve in the military, don't serve you know, for the government, these guys who got saved, they would say, okay, now that you're saved, renounce your position as a soldier. But he didn't say that. And so his conclusion was because that because it happened a number of times and because they were never told to renounce their position, then logically we would say that that wasn't a that wasn't a care at that moment. Um, but rather, you are now to act as a believer in the position that God has you in, and in these cases would be in the military. And that's what Augustine said here. Saw that Christianity was not incompatible with war but was to influence it towards the proper methods and ends. And then the quote there, peace should be the object of your desire. War should be waged only as a necessity. Violence may be necessary in our fallen world to protect the innocent and fulfill the command to love one's neighbor. So he's seeing how these things are put together. How can we make sure that we that our neighbor is being loved? It may take an act of war to do so. And as he says there, Augustine claimed that he the war should be fought to restore peace and obtain justice. It must always be under the two things, a legitimate ruler and be motivated by Christian love. And so legitimate ruler is very, very key um, and then motivated by Christian love. So that was Augustine. Let me fast forward to the Middle Ages, that 400 to 1400. Um, famous example, obviously, that always comes up are the Crusades, merge, merger of violence and, and holiness. Um, during the Crusades, the Crusaders, and I like that phrase there, violence was now made sacred. And so they were saying that we needed to, to kill the, the infidel, kill the Muslims. And the Muslims said we need to kill the believers, the Christians. And, and uh, if you know anything about the, the several Crusades that took place, it was just not a good time in history in general, and specifically things claimed to be for the church. And then you have early, what they call early modern warfare. Early modern warfare consisted of early cannons. They have these absolutely beautiful drawings of what these early cannons look like. And not cannon like canon of scripture, like cannon that shot an actual cannonball, right? Um, going to the 15th to 17th century, because man found gunpowder. And uh, man, when gunpowder came on the scene, talk about changing the face of war. Uh, very interesting. I did some cursory reading on it this weekend just to, to see kind of what took place. And, you know, they would build these massive, uh, massive walls out of brick and sand, uh, thinking that it would stop what was coming at them. And then you had these cannonballs coming through there with the invading armies. And then you would have guns versus bow and, bow and arrows, right? So you can imagine how that went. Um, and so as that came around, you can read there, kind of middle of the, the paragraph, um, these individuals rediscovered the relevance of the New Testament and were led to condemn war. But you had Protestant leaders during that time, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, accepted the use of violence and warfare as advocates of a just war theory. So going back to the 4th, 5th century, you had um, Ambrose, you had um, Augustine, and their just war theory. And then now you fast forward here to the, the 1500s, roughly a 1,000 years later, you see Luther, Calvin, Zwingli also taking that. Uh, Luther actually taught that, as you see there, without arms, peace could not be kept. Um, because of everyone, it's kind of the old adage, right? If everyone has a gun, there's going to be peace. But if only half the people have guns, then there's going to be control. Um, there's a reason why open open carry states have less gun violence than, than other states. But that's for a, another uh, ethical class. Um, so Luther also taught that sometimes wars had to be waged to repel injustice and establish a firm peace, similar to what 
Augustine had as well. And just a side note, you had the Anabaptists there, which 16th century. Anabaptists, um, they had a faulty view. So if you have your Bible, you turn to Matthew 5. This is oftentimes quoted. I've heard this a lot. Um, and uh, Matthew 5, uh, 38 and 39. So the Anabaptists uh, went with pacifism because they felt that Christ uh, initiated a new order of love and meekness. And, uh, and so they believed in non-resistance when you were mistreated. And so Matthew 5, 38 and 39, many people base their idea of war on this. And it says, uh, Jesus said, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. So if somebody were to come up to you and say, Hey, Christians should not go to war. Let's read Matthew 5, 38 and 39. What would your, what would your very logical rebuttal be? We think about context first and foremost. Always think about context. It's very easy to prove anything from the Bible when you don't care about context. Say again? Vengeance is the Yeah, vengeance is the Lord's. But context here, what's Jesus speaking? Yeah, Val. One hundred percent. Jesus did not say when a government is attacked, that country should turn the other cheek. That country should allow an invading country to come in, murder, rape, pillage its citizens. No. What was he? What technically was he talking about here? You taking vengeance? That's the context, right? And as Barb said, vengeance is the Lord's, right? So we are not to take vengeance on a personal level. That's up to the Lord. This has absolutely nothing to do with war whatsoever. Right, and so remember the first rule of hermeneutics: context, context, context. Right? You can't just quote any verse you want out of the Bible to prove any point that you want. You have to say who was the original audience, who was speaking, why were they speaking, and then once you get down to that, the other person will say, "Well, that doesn't matter." Then you say, "Ah, now I know the person I'm arguing with." Right? And so context is king. Yeah. I would say in most cases that's probably safe, yes. I don't want to give a blanket statement. Maybe it was a hard slap, but yeah, um, for sure. Yes, I would agree. So, like, I mean, if somebody's got a gun in your face, you're going to turn the other cheek? So now you've crossed over, right? So now you're looking at personal safety. So now we have, we have uh, as it says in there, the uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, but you do have uh, the God-given right to protect yourself, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, to, by that ends. But what Jesus is speaking about here is not necessarily that, not speaking of protecting himself. Like when you read here, um, do not resist an evil person. So even in that case, you could say, I'm not going to resist you. I'll give you what you want. And if somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, puts a gun to your face and give me your wallet. I mean, yeah, here, take my wallet, right? That's perfectly fine. Um, but you also, I would, I would also assert that you do have a right to, uh, to be able to defend yourself uh, in such cases as, as well, if, if that's what you want. But when we do defend ourselves, we also have to know the consequences that could come from it, right? So whether that's you being killed or you injuring the other person, um, and so uh, just taking all things in, into consideration. But yes, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, if you don't understand what that means, it's meaning that you can't go above and beyond the punishment for what's taken place, right? It's actually there as a good thing. So when somebody steals a paperclip from work, they don't get the death penalty. 
right? They may have to pay the 50 cents or whatever paperclip costs for restitution. That's why that's instated, which is actually very helpful. Uh, and so uh, four basic views about war. Um, so we need to know if every declaration of war is morally wrong. Also, can a Christian fight in a war, kill others, and not be guilty of sinning, right? So first of all, you have activism, Activism just gives a blanket statement. Christians are to support a military effort whenever their country declares war. And here's the reason why. Governments are ordained by God. The Bible tells us to submit to our political rulers. So therefore, we must trust their judgment that war is necessary. Not necessarily a bad thing, right? We don't have all the information. Um, and so what he says there, while few Christians will admit to holding this view in theory, a great many believers tend to follow it in practice. Right. Um, since we have a deep sense of patriotism and since their government always presents some justification for every war, they actually support all their uh, country's wars. So that's why you see, uh, in most cases anyway, um, when there's a large war, realize there are many wars uh, that aren't declared war, we would say. There are operations that take place that the government does without any of our knowledge whatsoever. What we're talking about is the, the war when the president or chief of staff or whomever that is comes on, they usually go on the radio or on TV, and they start giving justification for why they're doing it, right? They're they're laying it out. And so in this day and age, they make sure they get a lot of video footage. They make sure that they, they give the public enough information so that the public will also be on the side of the government and being able to support that war. Um, one of the objections at the top of page four to activism is that, Two nations about to go to war with one another can and usually do each claim moral justification for that war, right? And so you think about when Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, you probably didn't hear all the Russian justification for it, right? They Russians were saying we have Russians that were living in this section of Ukraine and the Ukrainian government was murdering our people because they didn't want them there. So now we are going to be invading here. So the Russian people were behind what was happening when Russia invaded Ukraine, you listen to what Ukrainians said, and they said the exact opposite. And because Russia is this massive power, and Ukraine was a smaller country, it seemed very overpowering, so everyone immediately got behind Ukraine. I'm not saying you should be behind Russia or Ukraine. I'm just telling you what happened, just giving you the narrative, right? Because we only hear one side of what's going on, which is actually Proverbs 18 tells us to hear both sides of the story before we actually make any judgment. Because the one who pleads his case first usually seems right. So my point, my only exhortation to you is before we jump on one side or the other, we should probably hear what both sides are saying because both sides are, are going to be trying to justify what's going on, right? Uh, but as it says there, logically at most, one side is justified in fighting uh, the war. So typically in a, in a not perfect, perfect society, you have a one regime or one country that is doing something evil to its people. And then you have another country that sees that and they want to help that country. And so they go in there, they declare war on the country. Um, and we'll get to this, but declaring war on a country should always be uh, a last uh, last resort as well. Uh, and then one of the arguments for activism, activists replied that even if this is the case, even if it's not justified, to blame an unjust fight rests with the government, not with the individual soldiers. The soldier's duty is to obey. Uh, further disobedience to the government leads to anarchy, a condition that might even be worse than war, right? And so that's just as a as a soldier, you're you're put under the command of a chain of command, 
And uh, nine times out of ten, you don't know all the orders that have, have come down through that chain of command. You just know the order that you've been given. And then you follow out that order. Oftentimes, uh, you're not allowed to think about that order. You're just called to obey that order. Um, and so that would be an argument for uh, activism. It's the duty to obey the government. Uh, and then you have just war. Oh, yeah. soldier, but it doesn't really address the civilian, and uh, it seems like we could be, based on their argument, the civilian too should be expected to in some ways to support the government in their efforts for war. Um, is there a distinction like between soldier and civilian, or, I mean, how do we think through, like, okay, the, the government has said all young, all men of this age to this age are now soldiers. Are, right. we, are we free to resist that, or... Well, you're always free to resist it, absolutely, but the consequences that come. So if you say I'm a... I guess what I'm asking is, is it... I mean, we're we're told to submit to the government. Right. In that case, would it be a sin to resist it? Is it a conscious issue? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. And I would say it's certainly a a conscience issue at that stage, like if they're just conscripting men to come in. Um, But at the same time, we do have have a, a responsibility to submit to the government, even if we don't agree with it. So as we go through the just war tradition and you say, hey, you're lining this up and in your own mind you're saying, well, they've gone to war first without ever trying any diplomacy. They're seeking to murder civilians, not actually, you know, they're looking at non-combatants instead of the military. That's when I would say my conscience would say, no, I can't agree with the government in this stage because I see that they're sinning. But if the just war lines up and I still don't want to do it, then I would say I'm sinning by directly disobeying what the government's asked me to do. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right here. Oh, it's literally the next heading. Yeah, yeah. She's always ahead of me. Always ahead of me. That's why I love her. It's my wife, by the way. Just in case you didn't, I'm not just loving random women up here. So. You're all great, but I love her. So, um, so this is what. So you have the just war tradition. So this is what most modern first world, Western, whatever you want to call them, countries aim for. So just war tradition would not be found in um, most countries that are harboring terrorists or practicing terrorism. That's not exactly what they're looking for at all. So if you think of the major world powers, uh, Western countries, now there are some that don't, right? I would say um, you know, a country like Russia probably doesn't care too much about a just war theory, right? Um, but the United States, for the most part, um, Great Britain, for the most part, a lot of the other European countries, uh, they, they do look at a just war theory before actually going to war. Um, and so just some highlights there. Um, so it says the just war position gives the Christian an intellectual and theological matrix to which evaluate potential and actual conflicts as well as guidelines for how wars ought to be fought. And so this, Justin, to your question, how can a civilian actually know this? It's a matrix, but I just want that next sentence is very, very key. Just war tradition is a broad consensus, not a settled doctrine. So you're not going to be able to go to the scriptures and say, okay, in Ezekiel 5 it says this, and in Daniel 8 it says this, and then in Romans 5 it says this, right? But we're building it off of Christian principles that have been brought down over the last 1500 plus years to say here is what we would say a just war is um and so that uh italicized 
It says it was developed over centuries by theologians and jurists who desired to apply scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, and moral wisdom even to the most brutal of human enterprises who wanted to bring Christian charity and justice even to warfare. So the motivation behind it, the goal behind it, was that a war would be fought justly and be able to say that it was for the cause of Christ, right? Um, so that it would bring uh, Christian charity. The tradition does not claim to remove all difficulties. So you're not going to find a war that lines up perfectly with all of these. It's impossible, right? Because you know why it's impossible? Go back to man's heart, right? It's impossible for it to be perfect because man is not perfect, right? And so just war theorists distinguish between the conditions necessary for declaring war, so that just ad bellum, and the guidelines to be followed once war is underway, um, justice in action or just, uh, just in bellow. So you have the two things, right? So how do we make sure that we're declaring war properly once war has been declared? How do we then make sure we act in that wartime in such a way that's honoring to Christ and bringing justice. So the first one, uh, just ad bellum, or justice for war, you have five criteria. So the first one is a just cause. I always found that interesting when they call the war operation just cause. They're just coming out and saying, hey, we ticked the first box, right? Uh, it says war is designed uh, for aggression against the neighbor or those designed simply to increase a country's wealth or prestige cannot be justified. A just cause may be to intervene on behalf of an innocent third party to punish an evil or aggressor nation or to defend one's own nation against aggression or overthrow. So realize the country you can either go to war, as in go meaning you're leaving your country to go to another country, or go to war as in a country has invaded your country and now you have to defend yourself as it's coming, right? And so a just cause. Is there some intolerable evil that's taking place within that country that we would say, okay, I can see that war can justly be um, claimed here without actually doing it yet. What it's saying is you can see that the the um, conditions exist for war to be started. And then secondly, you have the right authority. This category is to ensure that the proper authorities are calling for the war. Just wars are not private revolutions, Right? So just because somebody stands up and says we need to overthrow the government and they tell you the 10 things that the government did wrong and then we all get behind them and we all follow and we say, okay, we're going to overthrow the government. Now, that uh, usually brings up questions of what? Revolutionary War. Oh, great. My wife once again. Revolutionary <laughs> War, right? Um, if you actually know the history of the Revolutionary War, it was a just, it was a just overthrowing in my opinion. They, they sent to Britain to, to talk to the king. They went all the steps that they were supposed to do, and the king de declined them, kept taking their money, sent over soldiers, and so it was a, it was a good war. But um, once again, it's a whole other ethics class. I'd be more than happy to, to teach. But um, So you have the right authority. So you kind of see laid out there in the U.S. that Congress has the power to declare war, thereby helping to ensure that there will be vigorous debate before the wholesale commitment of an American ground forces. So we can't just willy-nilly declare war. It has a process that it, it actually goes through. So not only do you have to make sure that there's just cause and you have to make sure that there's a legitimate leader that's there. And then the third one is just intention, um, which would be the goal of peace. Which if you heard um, when uh, even the first Gulf War that took place, um, a lot of people asked, uh, is our goal actually peace in this region? And so many would say, hey, you can only have peace 
by establishing uh, an American-style government. So we were going in there to try to establish democracy as such. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that was the goal as they went in. And we can see uh, after 30 years or 30-plus years, there is no uh, American-style government that's there. But as you see the second uh, second sentence there, not only should there be a strategy to win, which we don't want to go to a war thinking that we're going to lose, but there should be a peace that can be achieved. So the goal should be to bring peace to that area. Now, once again, this is not perfect. So the goal may be to bring peace, but it may not actually come to fruition because, once again, you still have men's hearts that you're dealing with, and there may be people who don't want peace there. And if they don't want peace there, then there's never going to be peace there. Um, you know, I, I think about the, uh, uh, you know, Hamas uh, coming against Israel. And, and I, many years ago, Benjamin Netanyahu had said this quote that has just stuck with me over the years. And he said, if, if the terrorists lay down their weapons, there'll be peace tomorrow. If we as Israelis lay down our weapons, we'll all be dead tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So the goal is not peace in that area, right? The goal is the complete extermination of the nation of Israel off of the map. And the leader of the Hamas came out a couple months ago and he said, you can, you can count on this war continuing until they're off the face of the earth. So there is no end in sight for them, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, the goal of peace should always be um, the, uh, the, the goal. And then, you know, you see in there um, the U.S. committing ground, ground troops in Bosnia, later Middle East. They wondered if any simple one-year commitment of U.S. troops could do anything to bring a lasting peace to a conflict that had lasted centuries. So once again, it's subjective to the government, right? They say, well, keep ground troops there. Sometimes they establish a base or a forward operating station or something like that. And so we just have to say, we might not agree with it, but you also have to understand you probably have 1% of the information. Uh, and so that's when we just have to trust that the Lord is working uh, through our governmental officials. Yeah. How do, we, how do we respond or how should we think about it when, like, you know, you hear, you know, Part of the purpose of the war in the Middle East was to gain control over oil and and other things like that. I mean, I think that the original intention for war might have been just, but there seems to be like peripheral things that they gain. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we think about that? We have to remember that even so. If take the Middle East for example. Their hearts aren't only the wicked ones, but so are our government leaders. Can you repeat the question? Well played. She was asking, this lovely woman up here, um, how do we reconcile in our own hearts when, say, for instance, you hear, especially like the first Gulf War, uh, when they were saying, hey, we're trying to bring peace to the region, but it also has to do with oil that's there that we want to have as well as a nation. Um, And I said, first of all, we have to remember that it's not just the people who are going to war that have wicked hearts. It's also our leaders that do. And so I think we would be naive to think, that they would see an opportunity to gain whatever it is that they want to gain, whatever commodity that is, and say, no, 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 we don't want to gain that commodity. We only want to bring peace. I think that would be naive in my personal opinion. Um, And so other ulterior motives, I would say almost 100% of the time. Um, But as believers, we are seeing that we do want peace in that area and we do support our government for what they're doing um, even if we think they may have some sort of ulterior motives as well. So once again, it's we, we trust that the Lord is overseeing what's going on. And that's, that's not just a, a catchy saying, but that's what the Bible says to do because he, God has established these governments. And so we may think there's an ulterior motive, and, um, but we also pray that there be peace in that area too. So a lot of hands. Okay, who wants to go first? Go ahead. Uh, so if 
the government calls you to war, right? And it says that the uh, the the blame of unjust fight rests with the government, not with the individual soldiers. The soldier's duty is to obey. Right. If the soldier knows that the government is lying to them for their reasons for the fight, would it be unjust for the soldier to deny that duty? Yeah. Once again, that's a conscious issue because you, as a soldier, do not have the full picture. So you might think that you're being lied to. You might be believing rhetoric from somebody else that you're being lied to. And so these are that's that gray area where, yes, you should try to hear both sides of the story. And in most cases, you probably can't. And so instead of conjuring something up, it, you, you then have to decide the consequence that comes. Like if your conscious is saying, I cannot go to war because I know that this is unjust, then you will face whatever penalty comes from your military unit or, or the government. And so that would be up to your conscience in that issue. So. Yeah. Okay, so the phrase, the spoils of war, popped up into my head. Hmm? So where does that fit into all that? You know, when Israel left, when the nation of Israel left, what did God tell them to do when they left Egypt? Grab all their junk. Yeah. Take it with you. Right? And so they had the spoils of war. Right? And so they were able to take that. Now, it certainly is a different context than that, what that was. Um, but no, we should not be raiding, you know, uh, civilian homes. Um you know, the U.S. has had a policy in many of its wars to actually send money back and to help rebuild places that they've destroyed. Um, but there is a sense, in some cases, you know, you look at the British Empire, the old saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. When they went to a nation, they would take it over and they would industrialize it or whatever they wanted to do. And so I don't think that there should be any unjust spoils of war. We're not there to steal. Um, as a believer, you still have... You still have to act like a Christian, right? What the government does, the government does. But on an individual basis, you still have you still have to act like a believer in those so, cases. So would the, the whole oil thing that you were mentioning, hmm? would that have been a spoil of war, or is that more like an objective? So once again, we don't have all the information. Right. I mean, I have my personal belief on that, but, uh, but you know, we just don't have all the information. And that's why it's so dangerous sometimes when we make these decisions because, man, we feel like we've read all the tabloids, we've listened to Fox News, so, man, we have all the information. But unfortunately, rarely, I would say rarely does anyone have all the information unless you get way up, way up to the top anyway. So a lot of times it's, it's, uh, it's best just to, to believe what we have, right? Yeah. <laughs> Would you consider the Civil War a just war? The Civil War a just war? Um, I don't think I would consider it a just war. I wouldn't consider it the war of aggression either, just for the record. Um, but uh, I'm not a Civil War expert by any means, so um, I, 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 do, I wouldn't consider slavery to be just by any means either. But also, um, yeah, I'm not a – That's that wasn't one that I really was fascinated to study, so unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, you should disobey an order if it's to kill a civilian or to rape a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Because that would be honoring, you know, as, as uh, they said in the book of Acts, we need to obey God rather than man. And so that would be a clear violation of biblical principles. Yeah, absolutely. Jason? Comment on that last question, for example. If you're in the Nuremberg trials, which happened in 46, 47, 48, uh, in Germany after World War II, when people claim, people in the German army, the Nazi party, etc. They could not claim, hey, we were just following orders. That was outright right. rejected and they got the sword. They did. That's right. Yeah, because they were violating, we would say they were violating scripture, right? But that wasn't brought into the Nuremberg trials, right? 
So, oh, should I repeat the statement? Did you guys hear it? Should I repeat it? Um, in the Nuremberg trials, you know, when they uh, after Nazi Germany, they um, uh, they told them that they could not just say they were following orders, but they were held accountable for the acts of atrocity that they did. Right? They, I mean, and that's an interesting point because man, given the opportunity in his fallen nature um, to do those things, it's not because you're following orders. It's essentially what they're saying is it's because you wanted to do it. And because you wanted to do it and you were given the opportunity to do such atrocities, then you actually did them. So therefore, you're held accountable for such things. So yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there are a lot of things that we don't know that's going on. And you have to, you know, look at your own conscience about whether you can do that and whatever fallout from that decision you make. Right. No time at all are we ever told to follow our government if it breaks God's commandments and breaks God's right. laws. And, 100%. You know, for example, killing Jews, you know, murdering people, because that's still murder, even if it was the contents of during the war, that is still murder because you're not in a war conflict. You're killing civilians. You're right. raping women. You know, all these other things that we, under normal circumstances, say that is sin and that's wrong. So under the contents or under the colors of I'm only doing... As Jason said, I'm only doing what I was ordered to do. But then whatever consequences happen, those are the consequences that happen. We are still required to be obedient to God, first and foremost, rather than our leaders, our government, you know, whomever. Yeah, yeah. So as Mark said, uh, we can't just do whatever we want to do because the government tells us we can do it. Our first priority is to honor God in all that we do. And so if you always have that in your mind, you know, that the first priority is to glorify God, then even the orders that you're given that are against Scripture, you can, with a clear conscience, deny to do. Because your goal is not ultimately to please your commanding officer. Your goal ultimately is to please God and what you do, right? And there may be consequences for doing that. And there will be consequences for doing that, absolutely. So you take those consequences from man, which are all temporary, so you can glorify God, which is eternal. That's right. Uh, and then so you have proportionality. Any potential conflict must be evaluated as to the cost and benefits. Are the potential gains worth the possible costs and sacrifice both money and lives? And then really the question is, will the destructiveness of the proposed conflicts outweigh any enhancement of other human values? And then the last sentence there I think is important. No one should prescribe a cure that is worse than the disease. So um, uh, I know you're going to talk about proportionality further down yes. on the page when it comes to... Justine Bellow. Yeah. Um, question that came to mind as I was looking at that, what about things like the carpet bombing in Germany, uh, German city in uh, World War II, dropping of the atomic bombs? Yeah, that'll be in the second one. We'll get to that. Those, this is just this is just more of the attitude as opposed to the action. I'm not taking a position and asking hmm. a question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually have some of that written down, so I don't want to give away my... I have nothing to talk about in five minutes. So. No, that's a great question, and we'll get to that. So proportionality. So basically what they're saying is, if we decide to go to war, is it going to be worse or better? Is it going to cost too much financially? Is it going to cost too many lives? Right. So that's what that's essentially the, the philosophical reasoning behind the why. Right. Like, if we do this, here's what it's going to cost. Here's how much we're going to go into debt for it. And then even more importantly, here's the loss of lives that we could potentially have, right? And so that's the thinking behind it. And then lastly, war is a last resort. Um, so nonviolent means of persuasion should always be attempted for a reasonable amount of time before resorting to war. And once again, that's really subjective, right? You see that word reasonable? 
Whenever you read the word reasonable, you always have to just tell yourself it's up to some guys to decide. That's it, right? So you might think, oh, we can wait two years, and they think, no, we're going to wait six months. So it's really subjective. Um, and then you, the things that you can, you know, to try to achieve peace, since the goal is to have peace, you see diplomacy, economic boycotts, other tactics that have all worked to achieve just ends. And I think, uh, you know, we lived in South Africa, and uh, I don't know if you know, but in South Africa, many countries had sanctions on them, right? So they weren't allowing any trade in and out because of apartheid that was there. And it was in 1986. So from 1986 to 1993, the United States had sanctions on South Africa. They, wouldn't, they weren't allow any trade coming in and out. Um, there, there was no uh, economics that was happening between the two of them. And so South Africa became a very independent nation um, that uh, that people were not dealing with because of apartheid that was taking place there. Um, at the end of 1993 is uh, is when you know most of you probably heard of Nelson Mandela. You see, then in 1994, in 93, the U.S. dropped sanctions because they allowed Mandela to come out of prison. And then in 1994, they had the free and fair election where all citizens got to vote, and he was voted in as president. And then sanctions were opened, uh, taken off, and then they were able to, to have trade and stuff that was there. So, you know, you could say looking at it from that standpoint, um, they didn't have to go to war. Just the countries having sanctions on them and the pressure they had from the international community uh, was enough to, uh, uh, to overturn that. So that's kind of just one um, one example of that taking place. There's obviously other sanctions that the U.S. has done over the years. Um, and so that's the, you know, should we go to war? And now you have, what does it look like in battle, right? So how should we act once we decide? So once we sit down and we say, yeah, we're going to go to war. Um, we've, we we want to achieve peace. We see that there's evil going on. We've counted the cost. Um, we know what we're going to be able to do. And, uh, and so... Now you have to say, okay, how should we act? And so you see that bold out sentence. This criteria for justice in battle are proportionality and non-combat immunity. So meaning the proportion of which the weapons that are used and the force that is brought upon and how many civilian casualties are there going to be. So what is that going to look like in practice, essentially, right? So proportionality, maybe... You know, if you think about proportionality, maybe you've heard it before, like Israel is using too much of their force against Hamas. Hamas is a small, you know, they would say, you know, fighting force, we'd say terrorist organization. And Israel is this massive country. And even though Hamas came and attacked them, Israel's using too much force against them. They're killing too many of their people. They have to back down a little bit. I hear that a lot. And so they blame Israel for being too strong against them. So this is what they're actually getting at. They're saying, look, Israel says that they want to have the just war theory, which they do, but they're using such proportionality, out-of-proportion force against this uh, terrorist organization coming against them. And so essentially, if you finish that thought, they're saying Hamas doesn't actually stand a chance against Israel, so Israel has to back off a little bit to let the terrorists win some. Right? That's my own words, by the way. Um, so a just, if you look at the sentence there, uh, the principle limits the use of force and violence to genuine necessity. A just government ensures that the means of war are proportionate to the tasks of war. So if you're going there to maintain peace in a certain region, what they're saying is you're not going to bomb the entire place, take out everybody that's in that one place, because you found that they needed peace here. Just to kind of, you would say, like, flex your muscles, right? That's not what you'd want to do. 
Um, and so you see in there, you know, proportionality in action, modern day smart weapons. You know, you can mark a target with an infrared light and, you know, a missile can hit right there. And we have uh, a lot of different weapons that we've actually taken this down to where you can hit a precise target. It's no longer just kind of throwing spaghetti on the wall like it used to be to see what, what's stuck. Um, we certainly have those weapons today, um, but we can we can get a little more precise in what we're doing. Um, and so then the, the last sentence, not only does this advance in accuracy meet proportional goals, but it also provides better protection for civilians, which our, our goal in that should be, as the next one says, non-combatant immunity or making sure that civilians are not killed. Um, now, obviously, inevitably, as it says there, civilians are going to be killed um, because they're in a, a war zone. Um, but we do not want to, and what's key in that first sentence, directly and intentionally target civilians, non-combatants. Um, and then the, the bullet point there, modern-day terrorists and guerrilla fighters pose grave threats to the doctrine of non-combatant immunity, intentionally locating their command headquarters or military targets within civilian areas. These groups use civilians as human shields for their acts of terror. Ironically, when they hide behind civilians in this way, terrorists are paying those nations that adhere to just war theory a compliment, acknowledging that such nations do not make it a practice to kill civilians intentionally. And so we wouldn't bomb a hospital or a school, right? That's not our intention. Um, we have uh, precise ways of going in and making sure that the, the terrorists are rendered inactive in those areas. Um, and so we want to make sure that the non-combatants to the best of our ability. So the two things in practice, right? We're not overdoing it. We're not bringing out our entire arsenal of weapons as, as we're going to war. We want to make sure that we're going there for specific reasons and taking out specific targets for the purpose of peace. Then we also want to make sure that civilians are not murdered um, and they're not targeted intentionally or otherwise, knowing that there are going to be, unfortunately, civilian casualties that happens with any war that takes place. So any questions? Did I answer your question? Not entirely. No. So what was it? Like a carpet bombing, purposely carpet bombing, for instance, the civilians in uh in uh, one of the German cities, I forget which one. Um, so we would say no. If you're purposely bombing civilians, that would be the, none. I'm not. I'm not arguing mm. against what was done. I'm yeah, just yeah. Asking question. So, and they also bombed a city in Japan mm -hmm. with an atomic bomb. Yeah. Program, um, which, again, yeah. Uh, in the case of Hiroshima, was mostly civilian. I don't think there's much military there. Nagasaki, I think, mm -hmm. is different. Um, so how, is that just because if we were to invade, then the citizens were going to take up arms anyway? So we're kind of um, presetting what was on, was what was uh, going to happen anyway. Well, in yeah, in those specific cases, my ethics professor is actually a, a nuclear war pacifist, right? And so he would say he's all for war, he's all for the government, but because nuclear bombs kill indiscriminately, he would say I'm not for the use of nuclear weapons at all. Uh, and so, once again, we look at our government and we say they had purposes beyond even what they told us for doing such things. But anything that's targeting non-combatants, that's where we would say, you know, we need to just, we need to see why they're doing what they're doing in those cases. Yeah, Jason? A uh, little more comment on that. The strategy in Japan specifically was because their manufacturing was so decentralized, everybody had their little workshop. This is how they justified it, mm -hmm. that... Civilians, because they are 
part of the manufacturing base of the war, that they're now a target. And also, from all the campaigns leading up to Japan, the casualty rates were so high on the American side. To land on the beach in Japan, they were projecting a million U.S. casualties. That's just on our side. So the idea was, we'll drop these bombs, overwhelm the position, and end the story. Yep. And I actually, years ago, got to talk to one of the guys who flew mm. the brigade. We got to talk to him personally. And there is not a single veteran that I ever talked to that was in World War II that they were all for the bomb. Right. And, you know, many late years later, our opinions on it changed. But sure. Those were the guys that were going to execute. Yeah, yeah. They, the one guy I talked to, he said he absolutely knew he would not survive the war until he heard that bomb there you go. That's a good answer. Yeah, I think we also have to remember, too, just if they're going in and helping the government and they're in war, even if they're not actually signed up for war, they're still participating in the act of war, right? Um, and so once again, we would say, is that person, um, you know, acting, are they are they now a combatant in that, right? Um, so I'm going to go, Jason, maybe come up. He's going to answer any more questions on World War II you might have, or... Um, <laughs> Or he's going to have some uh, some prayer requests. I, I have these written down up here, so I hope you can read my handwriting. But I'm going to go and do communion there. So thanks, guys. We will see you next week. So Thanks, Bob. Well, interesting topic and notes here. We can continue the discussion. How's as long as this go for? Till noon? Whenever you hear the, the song, the last song. Okay. I probably won't hear it, so remind me. But um, yeah, I mean, we can take a minute and cover any of this that Bob laid out. Anybody's got any comments? I heard some similar comment to what you said is that there's been people that said, had he not got the bomb, how many lives would have been lost as a result? I don't know if we have government come up with that or who exactly had those figures. Um, well, it was mentioned that the firebombing, this is the part I do know, the, the firebombing actually killed way more people than those two nuclear bombs yeah, did. I, I yeah, and it's just not a common, you know, because it wasn't like one big dramatic event. But I don't, I don't really know what the stats are. I did read that years ago, but I, I can't recall them. But uh, like I was talking about earlier, the uh, the one World War II veteran who was a friend of mine, he was on Iwo Jima. They went to uh, Hawaii to retrain, get replacements, and he, he knew he wouldn't survive the war. And uh, to hear him tell that story about they were on their way to um, to basically marshal up for the invasion of Japan. And then they got the announcement. The war's over. They dropped the bomb. Like, what's a new? You know, they didn't even know what it was. So they said, "Well, I'm going to be 21." So, Jason, you touched on this earlier, and I was curious about this because we were doing the just war thing about the theories behind it, the nations, but the Nuremberg trials and all the crimes against 
humanity and all that, what, where, where does that fit in in the world system of things? Like, where, where's that standard that they then have these judgments that take place on that? I, I didn't see that anywhere in the notes. I'm just curious if you do where that comes from. Like, it, as far as, like, Nuremberg, how they were justifying... Yeah, or, or just in general, in wars in, across the world, where do the crimes against humanity, where does that play out in what court? Like who? Currently, a lot of that's in The Hague, I believe. Uh, UN stuff, you know, they put out resolutions and in, in, uh, edicts and in, in determinations. Uh, a lot of times America agrees with them, a lot of times we don't. Um, there was some guys in Bosnia... I'm forgetting the guy's name, but maybe somebody remembers it here. But he was tried in that court in The Hague. That was in the that happened in the early 1990s, and then he was convicted in uh, Metterich. Milosevic. That's it. <coughs> so he was he was actually convicted in the 2000s, I believe, and I don't know what his his sentence was, but. Um, yeah, after they discovered the, the camps and stuff in World War II. Um, yeah, the guys who lost got to sit on the other side of the bench, right? So, um, anything else on this topic? Uh, any other prayer requests except for... Um, I'm taking a trip, family relationships, which I'm sure we can all use prayer on that. Um, traveling with a Mormon co-worker. Uh, watchfulness versus um, basically just letting our hearts run. As soon as we don't, as soon as we stop watching our heart, guarding our heart, we're so easily you know, pulled off the path, right? And um, Chuck Goslin has a surgery coming up. I know how that feels. So, anything else? Okay, well, I'd like to pray for that, so pray with me if you would, and then after that, um, if you got any other questions, or we can just fellowship. So, uh, Father in heaven, I just thank you for this time together here on Sunday where we can get together as a church family and worship you and honor you. Lord, I pray that uh, this coming week as I travel that you will uh, protect me in all things, help me represent you with with everybody that I encounter, Lord. I just want to be your ambassador. Also watch over my family as I'm gone. Uh, Lord, we also bring up all family relationships in here. Of everybody that's represented here today in this room, Lord, we all have uh, challenges, dynamics, um, sins, wrongs. Lord, I pray that all of us will look to you as the perfect example and that we would race to repentance when we fail, Lord, which is, which is often... And uh, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your long-suffering and uh, all those things, Lord. Uh, we also pray for a uh, um, business trip with uh, uh, Jamie and the, the 
Mormon co-worker. Pray that he would be a, a good example and have opportunity to share Christ with him. Um, watchfulness, Lord, versus any of us just being passive and going with the flow. Lord, we, we always need to be on our guard. We need to guard our hearts, our minds, our words, our, our attitudes, our affections, how we spend our time. Lord, I pray that everybody here would remember you, remember your sacrifice, remember our loyalty and allegiance to you because we love you. We want to obey you because we love you, Lord. And if we're looking at you uh, more than at all these other things in the world that can draw our attention away, then, then that will help us to be diligent and watchful, Lord. And uh, <clears throat> I also bring uh, Chuck Goslin's situation to you, Lord. It's a, um, it can be a heavy thing. Lord, I pray that you will uh, give him the, the grace, the mercy, the just even joy in the trial, Lord, and just turn his face completely and trustingly towards you, Lord Jesus. Lord, you give that grace in the moments it, it's needed. That's even beyond comprehension. We pray that for Chuck, and we just pray a uh, good outcome for everything that he is facing according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, final comments, thoughts, Rachel? Um, I don't want to open a can of worms. But Let's I do it. <laughs> I just happened to read the last page uh, about women in combat, and I just was curious, um, and I can follow this up too, but um, when it comes to, I mean, this, his points go only into the point of fighting, and I, I understand biblically the, where that comes from, but is that then also to say that women shouldn't join the military and do more of the you know, tasks and roles that don't put them on the battlefield? This is my opinion. This is not the opinion of the church. This is mine. Okay? Um, I don't think women belong anywhere near those units that, that are doing that work. Anywhere near. It doesn't work. We can go into detail about that if you want offline, but it's not good for anybody. Uh, supporting roles? Absolutely. There's lots of jobs that women are a lot better at. That's not one of them. Sorry. That That's where I land. We're pretty, very Did solid. They, they shouldn't be in supporting roles in the military. Should, supporting. But the guys actually coming through the door doing the work? No. No. It, it, it's a fail. Uh, I, had a, I had a similar question at one point that I asked uh, Pastor Justin McCarrick, who's one of the TES and he, as he addressed the question, one thing he pointed out uh, that I thought was helpful, he made a distinction between saying, okay, what should the practice of the nation be versus is it for a New Testament believer actually a sin to do that, right? Um, and then just for, I'm not going to nail To do that, that, meaning? To, for a woman to say, I'm going to join the military or I'm joining combat, right? right. And um, just... He laid down the principles more than saying, okay, this is a sin or not. 
because on an individual level, a woman has specific responsibilities to her family in the same way a man does. And so the question a woman would have to ask in terms of her individual culpability for pursuing such a position would be, can I in good conscience fulfill my role as a woman in God made in God's image and then specifically to my familial responsibilities, right, um, from a character perspective. And so while Bob's position, I agree with your position that from a governmental perspective, it seems pretty clear from Scripture that conscripting women to fight is at best unwise and at worst sinful. Um, it can be helpful to think through, okay, say a woman is in the military when she's converted or something. Does she have to drop out? Um, she would have to think through it not simply on the basis of did I sin when I joined the military? Because I don't think that's clearly laid out in Scripture for the New Testament. But what can she fulfill the role as a woman, potentially as a wife, as a mother, etc. Proper reality as a biblical framework for those roles. There's, there's lots of roles for, for everybody. I mean, I'd say women do almost a lot of things better than men, but that that's just one that it, it's a really tough job, and I was ninety nine percent of the guys aren't cut out for it. So, so is there a place in scripture where women were sent out to meet the kings of Canaan or anything like that? I, I can't think of any. The the only one that comes to mind a little bit is. Abigail, when she she runs out and meets David's army, because David was coming to kill her husband. No, she wasn't. She wasn't under arms, but she was out doing doing something. Well, I mean, even now, put that in the context of. I don't know if you guys seen what like ISIS and stuff was doing they're going to go I don't don't want to get graphic but it's just a couple things I wonder if uh, there's a case in scripture there's a situation in scripture where jail with a tent peg yeah executes that was a special mission right I don't think she was a soldier no she wasn't under arms uh, Valerie in the back and then here sent her instead that's right thanks Val ma'am Yes, and I somebody help me here, but I believe again, like Valerie was saying, that's because some of the guys weren't stepping up to fulfill the role, and that vacuum couldn't be allowed to exist. Yeah, uh, right here first, and then. Provide, protect. Yep. The wife was the helper suitable, so. Right. It would seem within those God-given roles that it would almost be kind of backwards in, in say, the military. It it fits to me, uh, Justin. Yeah, the role 
I was going to agree with the specific case of Deborah. One is a shame on Israel that men aren't performing the role of judges. Even the judges thing is already a shame on Israel because their kings are acting after God's own heart. Right. And, uh, yeah, there's a specific distinction. She's not um, functioning as a military leader. She's doing moral judging and such, and she does insist that Barack comes with her, too. She's like, hey, like, you're a dude, like, do your job as a man right. and lead these men. Uh, so it's not, uh, yeah. It's not good. I thought that was how it's In World War II, as a specific example, there were conscientious objectors. Um, what, uh, do you know anything about what Scripture says about that or what? In, the, in that case, where it is a just war, um, from all we know, I think you can say pretty kind of surely, I just have an anecdote. Um, there was some conscious objectors in World War II specifically who they said, give me a supporting role. I think a few years ago there was a movie about, um, the guy's name is escaping me, but I'll be a medic. And he, he did it to full measure. The best he do, everybody teased him and this and that, and the guy ended up winning the Medal of Honor because he did a lot of brave things. I read his memoir many years ago. So earlier, it also talked about like following orders. You could be in that unit that's doing something that ought not to be done, although you're in that unit. You can take a knee and face outboard and not participate in that. So even in that, you have a decision because it falls on you as an individual even though you, you may be in, kind of wrapped up or swept up in something that you didn't want to be in. So, good stuff. Sir? Um, there's, a, there's a great American history story. I think it's World War I. Uh, Sergeant York, who went in as a conscientious objector. Yes. Um, but when uh, presented with the situation, he saw that, uh, in his paraphrased words, uh, my non-action would lead to more people dying than yes. my action. Um, so uh, it, the perspective changed when he actually saw what was happening. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's really easy to sit on the couch and have opinions. When you're there, when you feel it, see it, smell it, hear it, it, it it's a lot different deal. Yeah, and and he actually ended up capturing. I forget the number of guys, but maybe he ended up capturing a bunch of guys, and obviously they that was a better alternative for him, right? Any last question? Good talk. Yes, last one. Yes, there is. And even when you're when you're deployed, when you're going to be doing something kinetic, you will have a very in-depth rules of engagement. And some of them are good. Some of them make it pretty tough on guys. Uh, and you don't want to be the guy who you step out of bounds so that you can actually ruin the trajectory of your whole operation or a whole nation. Right, 
so that's really really pounded in, into the heads of uh, you know young guys that are doing doing the job so that's it guys thanks, thanks you've been listening to presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park Michigan where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.